Hello and welcome to the first episode of the VC Printer podcast, a podcast that provides a unique perspective of the startup world through the lens of venture capitalists and entrepreneurs. I am your host Dikjay and I'm really really excited to start off this podcasting journey with all of you. Today I have with me a very special guest, Pranav Pai, founding partner at 314 Capital, an early stage venture capital fund based in Bangalore, which has a portfolio of 50 plus investments across various technology, product and platform companies in India and US. Some of their investments include Licious, Better Place, Open, Tone Tag, Darwin Box, Fairsend, Bugworks, Pocket Aces, Your Story, and Traxon. Pranav is a Stanford alum and also the co-president of Stanford Angels and Entrepreneurs India. In today's episode, we'll discuss, among other topics, the importance of the timing element before making investments, the challenges of founding and managing a venture capital fund, the key metrics used to measure the performance at 314 Capital, and preparing your portfolio companies for a crisis. I had a lot of takeaways from my discussion with Pranav and I hope you find it insightful too. Let's jump into the conversation and listen to what Pranav has to share. Pranav, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for being on the VC Pranav podcast. Thank you Dikje, pleasure to be here. So maybe we can kick things off with a one minute summary of your journey so far. Absolutely. Uh so I'm an engineer by training. I uh, did my schooling and undergrad in Bangalore. I'm Bangalorean born and raised. Uh, I decided to do my undergrad in Bangalore because it gave me a chance to spend more time on the ground. My long-term goal was always to specialize in technology and technology investments in the country. That's why I went to the US for a masters. Uh I was fortunate to have the chance to work hard enough to get into a university like Stanford. I had a great time there. an environment like stanford really pulls you apart in many interesting ways it it challenges your assumptions uh, you get to live alone you get to work with some of the sharpest minds you'll ever meet uh, so that was a fantastic experience uh, i owe a lot to my time learning there and then i decided to work for a startup in the bay area because i think the best way to learn how to invest or how to work on top of the stack is to start from the absolute you know basics so i i started as one of the founding product managers at an education company that's b2b sales sales to corporates in the us great experience won some big clients built some interesting software that was just around the time that mobile had become a full thing we were building on react for the first time so very interesting things that we learned along the way and then decided to come back to bangalore in 2016 we launched 314 together sudarth and me as partners and since then has been a rocket ship journey we are now manage over 110 million dollars we managed we just closed our fifth fund and this has been a terrific uh, terrific experience Uh, the whole decade 2011 to 2020 that's an interesting journey for now so continuing from where you left maybe we can discuss a bit about 314 capital and before we get into the details if you could share with our listeners you know what's the conventional vc approach of roaming startups and then how is 314 capital differentiating itself compared to other vc firms it's a good question so uh, as as someone who's raised venture capital myself uh, i worked under the ceo we got to sit in many pitch meetings got to understand how VCs in the valley looked at identifying value in the very early stage in the very first round so a lot of my lessons came from pitching actually pitching and three big lessons stood out for me in the conventional sense it's a fairly strong relationship oriented game so no matter what people say today no matter which blogs you read the unfortunate or fortunate truth is relationships matter networks matter uh, who endorses you who vouches for you who made a warm introduction your experience working with someone in that vc fund before in a, in a company that was successful or not successful all of these dimensions change the nature of every pitch the rose tinted glasses that you usually enter a pitch with all the all the movies and short videos you'd see online 
I think, uh, you know, having gone through those pitches myself gave me a very clear, grounded understanding of what it really means to pitch and actually raise money. Uh, so I think that's, that's the first lesson. I think conventional VC and conventional business in general is deeply network driven and that's important. Uh, that's why it's important to build relationships as early as possible. A second thing I'll add about conventional VC, and this is a good thing, is that most of conventional VC is built by operators who come from companies or technology environments from their previous experience. Uh, that's a good thing because then you can relate very quickly. Uh, there's no need to educate the VC about uh, the market and the details and so on. They usually have the market experience to be able to latch on quickly and understand your pitch and, and move on to more productive areas of conversation. But the downside of that is there are a lot of biases built into VC, right? For example, if you're going to a technology VC and talking about SaaS, a uh, certain SaaS idea you have, uh, more often than not, the, the conversations about, okay, who else is doing it and why can't a big company do it? And there are biases that come into the conversation that usually impede a productive uh, a conclusion of why this is valuable. So we see experience comes with its pros and cons. And that's something that was interesting to learn. And the third thing that was very interesting for me, because uh, you know I, I started the whole, my whole career in technology when I was 22 or 23, uh, it is an old man's game. It is a surprisingly old man's game. Enough blogs have been written about this, so I don't need to talk about it too much. But, uh, you know, we started our fund when I was 27, so that was 24. So by no means was it easy for us, and, and especially when it's an old boys club. Uh, so a lot of lessons that we learned in our previous experience before we started the fund was, was vital for us to know uh, when we started our own fund. So I think those are the three ways I classify my experience with the conventional VC. So we built 314 to be inversely, you know, related to all of these things that we identified as things that could be improved. So, for example, we are a very young team. You know, the average age in 314 is still under 20, 28. I'm the oldest guy in the fund. I just turned 31 last week. So we pride ourselves in staying very young. And that's given us a pretty strong advantage when it comes to building what I would say cultural resonance uh, with the founders and the teams that we're trying to work with. Because most of the founders in India, the, the usual demographic in India is trends very young. And that's an inherent advantage in a team like ours. A second very in interesting thing about how we build 314 is we don't need to be networked with you or related to you to hear your pitch on merit. So we source three, three and a half thousand companies a year now. Our investment team uh, led by my colleague Anurag Andasan, we've built uh, in our own proprietary deal sourcing systems to help us analyze companies uh, you know, in, in a scale environment like India. There are four to 5,000 new startups in India. We want to see at least uh, 70, 80% of them if we can do meaningful investments. So that's something we did intentionally. We want to see more companies. Doesn't matter if we know you or if we've heard you, or if someone made a warm intro, come talk to us. And the third interesting thing we built 314 to be different is we don't look at constructing rounds a traditional way. We don't want 30% of a company in the first round and then the next round's all up to you. Thank you, good luck, God bless. Uh, that's not how we work. We, we want to get very operationally invested, uh, not just in capital, but with helping you build your teams, helping you go to market, helping you create revenue, helping you finesse your business model. And uh, therefore, the more confidence both sides get, the more money you invest and the more ownership we build up over time uh, instead of taking a very high ownership very early. So a lot of things that we do which are very different from how conventional VC works. And so far, it's been an interesting, interesting journey to see how that's worked in our advantage. I think in some way that answers another question that I had in mind, which is how do you attract the best startups and maintain deal flow? I'll add one note there because that's, that's an important question for any VC to justify. Uh, that's one of the first questions we get asked from our investors. And the answer is, again, uh, it is a network game in the end. It is a relationship environment. Uh, it, is an, it is an old boys club in many ways. 
so yes, the best deals will be captured by people who just spend more time or have a brand that's a decade brand in this industry. Uh, but the good news is that legacy all, also comes with its disadvantages, right? Like I said, biases and, and there are things that you will ask that you know, just don't make sense today. So I think with more and more new founders every year, the call for novelty, the call for something different, not just on the startup side, but on the investor side also, has created a space for new funds like us. So even though we're only five years in, we can speak, act, invest, and think uh, like people who've done this for decades. And that's an advantage you get if you come from the bottom up. And that's how we build our own team. That's how we source companies. That's how we speak to founders. And that's why we would think that's an advantage we want to continue building over the next five years and next 10 years of our journey. Awesome. I'm glad you touched upon both unconventional and conventional VC characteristics there. I think the encouraging part is, especially in the last three or four years, we're seeing more and more new VC funds belonging to either of these categories, looking to back early stage startups and entrepreneurs in India. Next, I want to move to this founder favorite question, uh, which is, how do you evaluate deals at 314 Capital? And what is it that you're exactly looking for when you get a pitch from a startup? Great question. So uh, we'll get the standards standard basic hygiene things out of the way. So we want to know about you, your profile, your background, your experience, the market you're going after, your understanding of the market size. These are things that are basics now. There's no point speaking about those uh, dimensions. The three most important things we look for. The first thing we like to look for are uh, the dynamics between the founder and the market. So we prefer investing in a team that has what we call domain expertise. And a simple litmus test for the domain expertise is do you know as a founder, do you know more about that market than we do? And uh, remember, we are bottoms up investors. We take a lot of time understanding markets, understanding business models, understanding margin tolerances, who are the big players, who are the go-to-market partners, how do the channels work? So we have to spend a lot of time learning about markets if we don't want to lose our money. So we are very, very market biased. We have to learn about the market. So a good litmus test is, do you as a founder know more about this market than we do? And it has to be a market that we're interested in. That's really important. So if those things overlap, uh, suddenly we're very interested and the conversation becomes much more productive. And we're talking about nuances of that market, that model, and hopefully that differentiates us from the other investors a founder would usually be speaking to. So that's the one thing we look at, the founder market dynamics. Second very important thing we look at, maybe the most important thing is timing. Now, usually any investor, whether you're an angel, whether you're a public market investor, anywhere on that spectrum, you're looking for things like, is the market big enough? Is this a good product? Is this a good team? Is the product market fit? Something I can imagine. Are people going to use it? Are people going to pay for it? Is the pricing right? So all of these things are basics, like I said. But timing is the thread that ties all of these dimensions together. It's what you would call the most important feature in that entire domain. So I think timing is extremely subjective. Every, every person I speak to about a market has a different view of timing. Again, your biases feed into the, this answer that you'd have on timing. Uh, so we spend most of our time maybe on the timing question and we have to have a common understanding of timing with the founder. Why is now the right time to build this? Why is now the right time to scale a business model with these dimensions in mind? Uh, why do these margins make sense, not others? Why would you go with this channel, not the other? Uh, so the whole bunch of things that you have to be adaptive to and the answer on timing helps us also judge the adaptiveness of the team. Are they able to quickly react and uh, change to market realities as things change? And in a post-COVID world, you'd possibly imagine that many things will change much more rapidly. That timing is very important. The third most important thing I would say uh, for a founder to know is they have to have to have a clear idea of why they're raising money and how they'll spend that money. So many times we see pitches where the founder is comfortable saying, I'm looking to raise between 1 million and 7 million. 
Uh, therefore, my valuation will be anywhere from 4 million to 25 million. If I raise this much, I'll spend it on this. If I raise this much, I'll spend it on that. We, we don't think that's a plan. We, we think that's a, a range of dice throws, basically. So we like having very clear asks. Uh, so the more specific you are about a plan, easier it is for us to judge that plan and quickly tell you why, why it works for us or why it doesn't. So those are the three most important parameters, I'd say. No, absolutely. It makes sense. The more clear and specific you are in your pitch, the better the chances of you getting that funding makes it easier for the VC to evaluate the deal itself. With that, I want to shift focus to your days at Stanford and working in the Bay Area. Tell me how critical was that period for you in terms of personal growth, in terms of the different perspectives that shaped your worldview at that time and shaping you as an investor that you are today. Great question. I don't think I've been asked that before. Three things were important to me about Stanford. Many things were important. I'll talk about the top three things. I think, uh, you know, living alone in a country you're not used to, different culture, different space, different time zone entirely, different food, different behavior. I think it challenges your assumptions about who you are and what your comfort areas uh, usually tend to become in that age period, right? 18 to 25. So one important decision I'd made, like I said before, is I decided not to go abroad or out of Bangalore for my undergrad. And that meant good things. I spend more time with my parents and closer to them, my family, with my brother. I understand Bangalore much better now. I have networks here that are vital to me if I'm building a career in the city when I come back. So a lot of good things about spending those formative years here. But the downside is you don't have those forces being applied on you in those formative years. So you're in a more comfortable environment. So you are more confident about who you are. Going to a place like Stanford right after challenges all those assumptions from day one. So you're simply thrown into the pot and you have no idea how to swim. That was an interesting experience. Uh, so I'll, I'll tell you two lessons that I learned that may be most applicable to founders and the audience listening to this. Uh, one is I think I fundamentally rewired my understanding of uncertainty, risk, decision making. So, you know, we, we learn about basic probabilities and domains and ranges and so on and so forth. It's very academic, uh, usually the way we're taught. But the moment you go into a systems course, especially in a place like Stanford, especially if you're in electrical engineering, suddenly the, the nuance of how some of these models you're learning about apply to the real world, those nuances deepen and get very firmly embedded in how you think. So suddenly every decision is easier to qualify as this system, a part of that system. Uh, you would use this, this technique, you would use this method. So the specificity with which you make decisions gets refined in a way that I don't think I've seen anywhere else. So... In my opinion, if anyone has a chance to spend more time thinking about how they make decisions, I think that, that you know, it's, it's usually a meta science, if you will, like thinking about how you would think. I think that that's a really important skill set. And I think that I attribute that fully to my time at Stanford. The second very important thing I would say is a place like Stanford, you know, MIT, Cornell, there are, there are dozens of universities that do this now, NUS, they're very good at it. And I encourage more and more people to spend time doing this. But it pulls you out of your domain of comfort, like engineering, electrical engineering. And suddenly you are encouraged to take courses in finance, in behavior, uh, in design, in computer science that has nothing to do with com computing at all. So things like UI and so on and so forth, graph theory and uh, game systems and things like that. So you get pulled out of your, your domain and suddenly you see the fabric of narratives that bind all these sciences together. And you're much wealthier for it after you understand how things connect to each other. And VC investing or investing in general, even I'm sure most people listening to this would have a Zerodha account. Any investment you make, you have to be able to tie in these narratives to make sense of, okay, now is the right time to deploy my capital, right? Uh, so that framework of how to think and how to make things come together is vital. And maybe the most important thing I learned, and it's part of that framework, is someone, a mentor, I consider my mentor today, told me to draw an x-axis, a simple line. On one end of that spectrum, you have investors who are changing their mind 
every millisecond, right? Algorithmic investors, for example, these are quants, uh, mostly work in public markets uh, and they have no loyalty, right? They don't care what they're trading. It could be Bitcoin today. It could be, uh, you know, uh, Apple stock tomorrow. It could be something as commodities day after, but their, their algorithms change every millisecond, every microsecond. And they are low loyalty, high gains, high frequency. So they don't really care what they're investing in and they don't care about making those decisions work either way. For them, it's all about optimizing that, that nth decimal. On the other end of that spectrum, you have value investors and VCs. And value investors and VCs have one thing in common. They take a lot of time to build a thesis, to build an understanding, then they deploy, and they have no option but to hold, for sometimes for, for a decade. Right? So Buffett is holding Coca-Cola for the last, uh, you know, I think, one and a half, two decades now. VCs are almost forced, because they're illiquid investments, to hold for at least seven to 10 years. So if you draw that spectrum out, you understand that even something as simple as investing, right? just putting money in a company, there's a, there's a variety of ways you can deploy money. And in every part of that spectrum, you'd have different loyalties, different tolerances, different holding criteria, so on and so forth. So where do you want to stand on that spectrum? How you would build a fund or how you would build an investment, investment strategy? All of that, suddenly those are questions you have to answer. You didn't think of even asking yourself before. Right? So these are kind of uh, you know, uh, cross-domain lessons you'd learn. And that's why I think Stanford has been really important for me. Thanks for sharing that, Pranav. I think that's very insightful, especially the framework of bringing together different narratives, perspectives, and weaving together things to look at them holistically. I think it's an important skill set, not just from a VC perspective, but also for all entrepreneurs. So you spend some time in the Bay Area, study there, work there, and come back to India and start 314 Capital with your brother, Siddharth. And running a fund is definitely not easy. I'm sure it's as tough as entrepreneurship itself. So tell us about the early days at 314. What were the challenges that you faced when you were raising your first fund? Great question. So again, I don't think I've ever been asked that. So when we decided to launch a VC fund, you know, we had to do many things to convince ourselves first if this is the right thing for us to do right now. Right? So we had to answer the timing question. And India was in a strange time. So I remember in 2011 when I was leaving my undergrad college and I just got my Stanford admit, but I decided to sit, sit for the placement exams anyway. You know, the standard names were there, Infosys, DCS, Wipro, Cognizant, all the standard IT names, you'll remember. But we had two very interesting new companies come up. Someone called Mu Sigma and someone called Flipkart. And we looked at the news, we searched Google, you know, what are these companies? They just raised some 100, 200 crores. You know, what's going on here? We've never heard of these kind of companies before. Uh, so we were just seeing the first bubbles of the, the startup thing you know, coming up. So it was an interesting journey for us also personally to see that, okay, something was happening in 2011. And by the time we were thinking about what to do next in 2015, 2016, SoftBank had come in, Tiger had come in, and these were already trending towards billion dollar companies. So in a space of four to five years, we saw an entire radical 180 transformation in the Indian startup ecosystem. Uh, and an interesting thing had happened in 2015 and 16. The valuations had steadily climbed and the number, amount of money coming in every year was going up exponentially 2012, 13, 14, 15. But suddenly there was a dip in 2016. And we recognized a lot of panic in the headlines. Like, okay, the money's going away. India is going to lose all its money. Okay, the startup ride is over. These companies are going down. A lot of e-commerce companies, wallet companies, food delivery companies were killed off. You remember in that period? So all of us are benefiting from the cashbacks and discounts. Suddenly, it went away in a year. The, the pop headlines in media, but the underlying narrative there was, okay, there's, there's a small kind of semi-reset and this is a perfect time to enter because valuations are being reset. And if you want to build an early stage portfolio, it's now or never because the money is going to come back and there's going to be much more of it. And I think that was a, a good insight that we gleaned because that, that's exactly what turned out to happen. 2016 was a reasonably down year. 2019 was a peak. We had 14 and a half billion coming in. 
since the four or five billion in 2016. So we set new records after the low in 2016. We were beneficiaries of that surge. A lot of our companies that we invested in 2016-17 in the in the downtimes raised enormous amounts of capital in 2018 and 19. So that's why they're well capitalized now. I think the timing question for us it was almost answered for us without us doing too much work. So I think that was the interesting cauldron of you know, potentials uh, during the time we were starting 314. But the downside of, again, being young, not being part of a network, not coming from a VC or PE team ourselves, not having a big label on our resume that said we've spent 10 years in this company, 20 years in that company. I think the downside was uh, everyone we met, whether it was investors, whether it was other VC funds, whether it was angels, uh, were highly skeptical that we could do anything different. Uh, one investor, I don't want to say the name, uh, actually told me, look, if you raise, end up raising 40, 50 crores, don't bother investing, just give it to us. We'll invest it better than you. So you, 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 don't, you don't bother starting a fund, just raise the money and give it to us and we'll pay you something. <laughs> so it was, uh, it was pretty discouraging. Again, was this because of the age bias that you mentioned earlier? This, yeah, this is, this is one of those things. And of course, no one likes more new competition. And uh, some kid from engineering, some kid from CA coming and saying he's going to raise a 50 crore fund is suddenly more competition that you don't want. Uh, what if it works, right? So a lot of things that uh, happened to us in the in those two years that we said, look, I think we think we made the right decision. We think timing's working in our favor. We know we have to do things differently. We can't do things the way it's being done in the environment today. Uh, so we spend most of our time instead of giving interviews and and headlines and doing the standard award routines and uh, the thirty and the thirty and this and that and everything. We spent our time actually building market understanding, building systems, building. You know, we wrote our own software, like I said. So we spent three years just doing that, keeping our heads down. And when it came to the peak in 2019, uh, we closed two new funds. Uh, we showed up our own capital. We helped our companies raise a record amount in 2019 and follow on funding. And now things are flying much faster than we thought was possible. So I think keeping your head down, a lot of the you know negativity that will come your way, having firewalls to help you understand and glean signal from the negativity. I think those are the kind of skills that we were fortunate to have imbibed in us by our parents, by our environment before. Without that, we, I don't think we would have been successful. So it's, it's been an interesting journey for sure. And we're more excited about what's to come in the next five years. And all the very best for that. I think we all look forward to see how the 314 journey unfolds in the next few years. Thank you. So moving things along, Pranav, tell me as a VC, how do you measure your own performance? What are the metrics that you focus on? And apart from the quantitative metrics, what are some of the qualitative aspects that you focus on? Yeah, again, great question. One unfortunate thing about being a VC investor in the early stage is you have to give 99 times more no's than a yes. Right? For every one yes we give, we usually give 100 to 200 no's. So uh, there's a, unfortunately a lot of uh, rejection that we have to dole out. And of course, we pitched a lot of investors ourselves and it's not a similar ratio, I would say. It's a different ratio for us, but there are a lot of, there are a lot of rejections there also. So just learning how to say no. Uh, and being very clear about why it's a no, being respectful, not not taking anything for granted, having respect for the other person's time, for the, for the founders, you know, the time they've invested in pitching to you and crafting a narrative and spending time explaining what they're doing. We take a lot of pride and we take a lot of care to make sure that we don't ever take any of that for granted. So besides the usual metrics of turnaround time and how long we made you wait, and you know, we usually re respond to emails within 24 to 36 hours. So all of those things aside, we have to make sure that we do a good job of explaining our decision and, and why our decision is what it is. So we've spent a lot of time, like I said, understanding markets, uh, and that is what we can use to explain our stance on different things. So when it's a yes, it's a very clear yes. When it's a no, it's a very clear no. That takes a lot of time to do, but uh, that I think is time worth it. So that's one thing that we qualitatively put a lot of effort into. Uh, the second thing, uh, and again, I, I go back to a point I made earlier, is in maintaining relationships. 
Now, uh, even if we've said no to, and we've said no to now 10,000 companies, right? Over the last five years, we want to make sure that when the founder starts a new company or when they, they pivot or they come back for the next round, we want to be different than what they pitched to us before, right? Because they will be different. So we have to have a better understanding. We have to have uh, more nuance on the model. We have to have firmer uh, reason if they're saying yes or no and why now. Um, so we, again, qualitatively, we cannot have a slow day. We cannot have an off day, right? It's exhausting. It's a lot of work. I don't think I can work like this when I'm 40. <laughs> so I have to I have to also be cognizant about what I'm doing 10 years from now. It's going to be a new decade for sure. Uh, so qualitatively, uh, we cannot assume we're going to keep, stay the same that we did over the last five years for even the next five. So we're constantly asking ourselves, what next? What What's new? What's different? Right? The last thing, of course, is uh, we learn. We reach out to people like you. We reach out to people all over the industry, in the US and Singapore. We work with six countries now. We have a lot of respect for what young people in these other countries are doing with their contexts uh, in different ways. So we have to learn from outside of our own country, our, our comfort zones, uh, to figure out what we can do differently. So these are the qualitative things we've spent time on. And of course, adding value to our companies and so on, I don't have to say. If we don't do that, then we don't get better companies. Our founders don't respect us. Uh, that's something we spend most of our time on. I think that's a very refreshing perspective, Pranav. So switching gears now, I wanted to shift focus to the current COVID-19 situation. What has been your advice to startups you know, that are trying to survive the current situation? And how are you coping yourself as a VC fund, given this backdrop? Yeah. So I'll, I'll zoom out and give you some context. I think that will be very valuable for the audience here. So uh, we'll zoom out to 2018 and uh, we were getting signals from the people we speak to in Tokyo, in Singapore, in London, in the US, New York, San Francisco, so on. We go to many of the capital centers in the world. And Mumbai also was, was saying the same thing pretty, pretty quickly that uh, we were, everyone is expecting a very volatile 2020. Markets were overvalued. There was far too much liquidity. Interest rates were going negative. So more and more money piling into private, the private side, public markets. So the PEs were going up wildly. The FANG was getting... They were all becoming tending towards trillion dollar market caps, which is crazy. No one saw that coming, but that, that became the new reality. And uh, India was going through its own challenges, the NBFC crisis, so on and so forth. So uh, everyone expected 2019 to be a year where slowly people built up cash positions, slowly built, people built up positions in quality. So it's called flight to quality. The top 10 companies in every index start getting more and more money rushing towards them. So we saw that happening over 2019. So we, we decided to do three things, right? And there were a lot more signals for a volatile 2020. So US elections, bad Brexit, oil could always become volatile. No one can predict a pandemic, but there were many other reasons why you could expect a correction, right? Uh, so we decided to do three things. First thing we did, and we spent, I think, a manic amount of time just doing this very urgently, is we convinced almost every company of ours, at least the top 30 companies, to raise more money than they would have otherwise planned to in 2019. So if you're raising a $10 million Series B, raise 15. If you're raising a Series C in Jan 2019, why don't you do a D by September, October? Because you would have grown anywhere. Right? So finish two rounds in that year. Uh, so I'm happy to share that our companies combined raised over 1,650 crores in follow-on funding just Jan to December 2019, right? That's more than two times the amount of money we managed, so, which is crazy. So if you can do it and you know, we advise our companies to do this in a very detailed way, our suggestion was just build up cash, have a strong balance sheet, right? Second thing we did is we did that for ourselves. So we had to also have cash. So like I said, we raised two new funds. We doubled our capital under management. We crossed $110 million and we decided to wait to see if there was a correction. Again, what we did in 2016, there'd be revaluations all across the board. Uh, there'd be better founders coming up saying we're more real realistic about how much money we need to raise. We need to spend less to get the same effects, which is fantastic. So raise less, to dilute less, which is good for everyone. So we decided to shore up our own capital. And the third thing we did, and this is important, is 
we planned for corrections and what that impact would look like for each one of our companies. So because we have an immense amount of data, not just about markets and trends and capital movement and so on, but also about our companies, their business models, their KPIs, uh, we build systems not just to source, but also to compress our company's performance into different dimensions and be able to do quick reactionary analysis for them. So if something were to happen dramatically, right? So say a layman crisis reignited in 2020 and it was a different crisis in 2020, now that you zoom, zoom back. If something like that happened and it was sharp, what do you need to change? Uh, how do you, you know, move operations out? How do you change expense structures? Uh, we had to prepare for these scenarios in advance. And thankfully, for most of our companies, we could to some extent. When, when COVID hit, of course, we had to do that much faster. We were able to do that for 35 companies in less than two weeks, which is brilliant. Full kudos to Richard, Sadat, our finance team, who were able to do all this in record time. That's something that we operationalized very quickly. And I think our founders you know, had, a, had a lot of goodwill, a lot of good things to say about our analysis, the way we reached out, the way we helped them plan. We gave them confidence to speak to their boards. I think they did a phenomenal job of getting their boards to support them in a time like this. That's important. Communication is vital. So all those things led to what we would say, correction preparedness. Now, going forward, I think things have been radically redefined. I don't think we'll see the same kind of spending that we were seeing uh, pre-COVID. I don't think you'll see the same kind of tolerances for burn that we were seeing before. I think uh, many business models don't exist today like they did in 2019. So anything in gymming, in, in health, in education, a lot of those things that were offline, a lot of things will have to change or adapt. And technology is going to become vital. So if you were invested in companies that had built out, quote unquote, vital technologies that would be essential in a post-COVID environment, uh, suddenly your, your ability to get to more clients, go to market faster, all those things have been radically redefined. So that's the kind of reality that we are seeing today. It's going to take a lot more time to understand what the far-reaching implications will be because I don't think it's going to be the same as what everyone's writing today. It's not going to be the world ends. It's not going to be like things don't come back. Things will come back. But we have to be clear about how we will exist in that new environment. So matching what we are to the new environment, that's unique for every company, every fund, every, every individual. Uh, that's why we need to spend more time. That's my advice to everyone looking at this. There's a historical perspective to uh, how this thing has crafted over the last three to four weeks. And of course, over the last six to eight quarters, uh, that's a perspective we applied to our reaction as well. I think what's clearly come out from our discussion so far is what startups should expect from their VCs. You definitely need proactive VCs who can prepare you for a crisis, give you a heads up and, and have your back when required. Absolutely. So with that, we have reached a final segment of the show, which is the rapid fire round. I'll shoot you some questions and hope to get your honest opinions on the same. Fantastic. Okay, first one. What's your favorite book? And what's a book that you would recommend every entrepreneur to read? Uh, my favorite book, uh, it is, and I'll say non-religious because a lot of those things have impacted my thinking. Uh, it's a book called The True Believer. I think that's very important. The author, Eric Hoffman, he goes into detail on how mass groups of people think. Today, we call it groupthink. But back then, he called it mass hysteria. And it affects behavior, it affects consumption, it affects how brands build their uh, credibility or lose their credibility. Uh, I think the psychosis of what we would call consensus reality, right? I have my own subjective reality, you have your own subjective reality, but we have a consensus reality that we all meet with in the middle. Understanding how consensus reality gets built by superposition, I think that's a very good book. A book that uh, I would recommend everyone to read. I read this interesting set of books on how investors are investing today. I think uh, someone from Andreessen Horowitz wrote a book, someone from you know, KPCB wrote a book. Being able to read the summaries of those books and just comparing how styles differ, I would say. 
that it, that in my opinion will be the most valuable so i can't say i can't recommend one book but read the summaries of all of these books coming out scott scott kupor and so on i think that's the most valuable thing so i'm sorry i'm i'm not answering that question but that's how i read i don't just read one book and buy into it i read a section of books and then see what's common that's that's something i'd recommend anyone reading today okay fantastic next question two top rated founders from your portfolio and why do you rate them high of question uh, we respect of course we like and respect every founder we work with but uh, i say two teams that surprised me the most in good ways the first team i would have to say is lucius aben vivek at lucius the way they built their company the way they've stuck to their ideals uh, they were the way they prioritized quality over all the compromises that usually happen in an indian manufacturing type output environment i have not seen people just not compromising on any of their goals any of their stated objectives for any reason Uh, even if it costs them money so i think those guys have surprised all of us were extremely impressed with how they built their company we're very fortunate to be able to work with them so i'd say for sure look into their story and great people to work with a second very interesting team and we think they've done really well over the last few years uh, we funded a company called bugworks they are a very small research company in the drug discovery space uh, they're based in bangalore the only company we met actually thinking about superbugs a drug resistant bacteria and the effect that would have on people today if those kind of infections became something mass and uh, we were the only indian vc fund that even understood what they were trying to do and invested i think till date we're the only indian indian vc fund on the cap table still even though they've closed their series b just meeting that team having understood from them how the world might look under these scenarios now seeing what those scenarios look like for real uh, <laughs> seeing a lot of those things play out in reality i think uh, that's been a phenomenal experience we have enjoyed working with them between them they have 150 annuals of experience right so very senior founders very very senior people very senior team they have patience to work with us you know each team challenges the other it's been an interesting dynamic so final question people from the startup ecosystem that inspire you and that you look up to again uh, it's all founders i am constantly you know reading about founders who are pushing who are challenging limits who are pushing things forward and covid is giving them more fuel to accelerate things even faster so three founders i look up to for sure i think byju by far for me one of the most impressive founders i've met he's uh, he's almost like a role model for me when it comes to defining the indian founder uh, so i have a lot of respect for him kudos to him for that second set of uh, people i respect are the founders of rn capital the fund before us in our group so my father mohandas pai and dr ranjan pai who's chairman of the manipal group the way they've built and analyzed different markets the way they constructed their thesis i have not met too many people who've been that thoughtful and we derive a lot of inspiration and an experience from them uh, we wouldn't have been able to do what we did without them full kudos to them i look up to them immensely and third uh, all my investors because uh, all of them come from actual industry experience they've built large companies before whether it's the founders of infosys the founders of dmart the founders of havels uh, i can name many many companies the promoters who are invested in us uh, we look up to all of their stories and how they've crafted their companies very resiliently they've set new examples for us learning from them being able to work with them has been a tremendous experience thanks for sharing that pranav i think it's a perfect note to end the show on i had a great time chatting with you today thanks for your time and hopefully we'll have you back on the show soon again absolutely thank you dikje enjoyed it thank you so much for listening to today's episode of the vc pranav podcast if you enjoyed this episode please let a guest know about it share your thoughts on social media and let them know what were your key takeaways we would truly appreciate if you could subscribe to our podcast on the podcast platform of your choice and leave us a review on apple itunes this will help others discover the podcast to get insights and to learn more about startups and venture capital you can follow us on twitter and instagram we will love to hear from you there you can find all episodes together on our website thevcpreneur.com 
we will be back again next week with another vc pronor that is making a dent in the venture universe until then take care and keep shining